Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Spark. We tell true stories. We tell them live. And we tell them across the UK. Today we continue our stories of escape. With our host, Gigi. Hello again, people. We managed to rope a few people into coming and telling their story. And I'd encourage anyone to do it and to prove to you that anyone could do it. Let me tell you a stupid thing I did. So uh, we made it to New York, and I started to try to make friends, and my parents uh, had to leave us at home. We were 10 and 8, and they just had to kind of trust that we wouldn't do anything stupid and kill our, get ourselves killed. So uh, we lived in Queens, and our parents came home at 7 p.m., and they would left, leave at 7 a.m. So we had the whole day in the summer to kind of get into trouble. And there would be a, a sort of a gang of kids sort of running around the base of our 12-story building, um, just playing and playing stupid games. So one of my first friends, who didn't have a very high IQ, in my opinion, uh, <laughs> but I needed her because I didn't have any friends. So I, would, I was just that day uh, running around with her and doing whatever she suggested. And so she suggested something really stupid, but I did go along with it. And she said, um, well, how about this idea? Why don't we tie our wrists together? And you can just follow me around all day. And I, I thought, well, OK. And so we tied our wrists together with a very thin piece of rope. And there was about five feet um, between my wrist and her wrist. And walking around the outside of our building. I did that for a little while, and I said, you know, I don't want to do this anymore, Diane, and uh, I'm not doing it anymore. And she said, sure you are. And, and she went into an elevator, at the elevator at the base of the building, and uh, somehow my terribly high IQ did not think, uh, couldn't, prevented me from seeing sort of the possible conclusions of this because I was used to much more abstract thought. Um, but anyway, she goes into the elevator and I'm tied to her and I'm like, I'm not going in that elevator. Yes, you are. I'm No, I'm not. <laughs> and so the elevator door starts to close. And you know how the, you know, when something horrible is happening, the, how time kind of stretches. And so 
the time was stretching kind of and I could see sort of my hand kind of slowly going this way as the elevator door is closing and then my hand is slowly going up the <laughs> elevator door and I had the time to actually think my parents are going to be so mad that I've lost my hand and you know <laughs> with within five months of being in New York as a new immigrant and uh, my hand is going up and I, I hear Diane screaming from inside the elevator ah what do I do and she's too dumb to just press the stop button and uh, I'm like so here I go I mean I don't know what actually happens to a hand if it's <laughs> luckily the rope broke <laughs> and um you know, that was a happy ending to one of very many scrapes that we got into that my parents never knew about. <laughs> Next storyteller is Julie. Hello. Hello. I was 10 years old when I learned not to give too much importance to the authorities because when the Nazis arrived in Hungary, we had to flee in one hour. And when I arrived to Budapest, my father was there with fake papers. And I did live one year with fake papers, going from one place to other, but I didn't consider myself, of course, migrant, if, even if we had to hide. So I realized that I was migrant only like two years ago when I heard <laughs> that they don't want a Romanian in England. <laughs> because what they will do, they will come all over. And they didn't come because those who wanted came before. <laughs> so when I was 18 years old, I lived in a communist Romanian dictator. I finished high school with very high degrees. From 100, I was the number five in, in a good order. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, believed I would go soon to university. And then I received a letter. I am not allowed to go to university because my parents are not workers. And I cried, and I cried. And I decided I will not let myself being discriminated anymore, I will fight when something arrives next time. But a year later, my father found me a place to work like technician in the Chemical Research Institute. And then I learned that there was an open university which lets everyone who works, you had to be a worker yourself, and then you could go to open university. We were sent material and we could learn at home. And then twice a year, we would go to examination and with luck and a lot of work pass. Now, we begin 10,000, I think, but after two years, we were only 150 
who persisted. I spent the years of 18 to 24 working and learning. And uh, one day, a woman with a bad hair and looking more like someone who sweeps the floor than someone important came and told me, I want this table. I got a small table just two years before. I had to work in a chemical laboratory. Usually they are high tables and high stools. But when I gave to my research chemist a good paper that she could use, she gave me a small table so I can write down our research. So I told her, no, that is my table. I need it. Give it to me now. And she began to cry even more. As soon as she went out, I went nearby lab and I asked, do you know who is that crazy woman? And she told me, oh, ah, la, 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 that is Elena Ceausescu. That is the future wife, communist chief wife. Okay, I didn't know. <laughs> so next day, next morning, I came to work and I was not allowed to go in. I was taken by two young men and told that I, you are lucky because we made investigation and we found out that you don't know with whom you were so not nice. <laughs> but you cannot go anymore to work here because we wouldn't like her to see you. So they forbid me to work. I needed to go to work somewhere because I had to finish the university and for to finish the university I had to work. So I went in a place where I could work with my hands like a manutentioner and put uh, etiquettes on uh, bottles and I worked there one month. But after one month, they told me, you cannot work anymore here. Two weeks later, I went to university to give my last examination that would make engineer of me. And all the six years I worked and I studied will be rewarded now. And my name was not there. And I asked, what happened? And finally she told me, there is a paper here that you are enemy of state, enemy of people. What? And you are not allowed to go to any university in Romania, to any school. I went home. And what I can tell you, all the earth seemed gone out of me. My father found me someone who was one year in France, 
one who knew French, and I learned French six months, and then found me a university student of English, and I did begin to learn English for six months, but I still was very, very sad. Until I decided to go with my boyfriend all the way. <laughs> and that helped me out. <laughs> I was no more uh, have been, I was now a woman. <laughs> and I was very happy again. And the words seemed to open before me. And my father asked me, do we sign emigration papers to ask to get out of Romania? Because I couldn't work, I couldn't study, I, I couldn't do anything. And so finally I accepted it, even it was, if it was to leave my friends and my home and everything there. It took us two years to go out and to receive the papers. And in these two years, I married. Because I believed they will never let me any way out. So my life was in limbo and I didn't want to continue anymore. And also, my mother died. And I went to the customs and they suspected that there is something hidden in my mother's ashes. So they took a newspaper and they thrown my mother's ashes on it. I almost fainted. And finally, I sit down and I fortified myself thinking that I will anyway take something that they don't know about. It was my future kid, <laughs> which was born in a free country. Thank you very much, Julie. We'll return to the stories in just a second. But first... We're asking listeners of this podcast to help the refugees of today. If you can spare £5... $10... To help people fleeing war and persecution... Like Julie, like Hassan... Then head to stories.co.uk slash donate. Pause the podcast now. And give what you can to our chosen charity, Refugee Aid. Go to stories.co.uk. Thank you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When have you had to make a quick exit and why? I'm eight years old and I am at my afternoon language class learning French. This is 1987 in South Africa and my class was one of the first multiracial schools. I hear a noise behind me, which is the classroom door opening and see something flying into the room. There's a large bang and the room fills with tear gas. We try to escape, but the door is locked. We are crying and screaming. We had to wait for the police to break down the door and help us out. I have no idea how long it took for us to be rescued. Thank you. Um, Our next storyteller is Prue. Thank you. Hi. Well, following that amazing story, I don't really have very much experience of having to escape. I'm very privileged in that sense, and I'm lucky to say that I've never really had to run away from anything serious. My life's never been in threat. My home's never been in threat. My beliefs have never been questioned. I've lived a pretty free and privileged life, and up until... The 2nd of September last year, I considered myself to be really politically engaged, switched on. I thought I was up to speed with current affairs, that I did my bit. I was with friends, we were collecting things for the camps in Calais, and we were taking things there, and we were fundraising, and I was a really good keyboard warrior, just like hitting Facebook book hard every day. Yeah, feeling really good about myself. And then one morning... It was the 2nd of September and I was on my way to work and I was running late and and just kind of a bit preoccupied and I had my latte and I was flicking through my phone as you do, just kind of getting the tidbits of the news and um, I'm sure you probably all saw the same picture but um, I saw the picture of um, Alan Al-Kurdi's body on the uh, beach in Turkey and um, I think perhaps because I wasn't expecting it, it hit me It hit me really hard, and my initial reaction was kind of a denial. Like, no, this is really bad. Like, they shouldn't actually... We shouldn't see things like this. You know, this shouldn't be allowed. You know, this is intrusive. What about his family? You know, I'm not comfortable with this. And then I kind of processed it a little bit, and I realised that that was my, my fear and my kind of disbelief that was leading me to that conclusion. And I started to think about it a bit more, and I remembered my son when he was that age. Um, I remembered the feel of him and the weight of him, 
and you know his laughter and how alive he felt just how how vibrant and full of energy and just chunky he was and I imagined that gone and I just imagined that that body still and I started to cry and I, and I feel ashamed because it was it was selfish tears I was considering how I would feel to lose my own child but I was on this packed commuter train and I couldn't hold it in and um they were just streaming down my face just kind of mascara everywhere and I was sniveling people would give me tissues but like no one really knew what to do they were all just kind of looking a bit like oh, all right love calm down so I kind of got off the train and rather than you know change stops and rather than carrying on with my journey I had to sit down for a minute and I just kind of had to gather my thoughts and I thought you know this is I I can't do this anymore I can't carry on being the keyboard warrior you know having people pat me on the back and go you're doing really well you do so much oh my god you put me to shame because I know in my heart that I'm not doing enough I know in my heart that it's a conspiracy for me to do the little that I was doing and to feel good about it. So literally, I began to throw myself into it. I was like, I'm going to look into the eye of the storm now and I'm going to really, really understand this because I've been quite complacent. I've been doing enough to make me feel like I'm a good person, but not enough to really upset my personal status quo. So I started researching And I joined loads of Facebook groups and I just had this constant stream, 24-7 stream of really disturbing stuff that wasn't out there in the news. There was like this kind of weird blanket in the news at that time that, you know, certain stories were getting through, but you'd research this stuff and the numbers of people that were affected, I mean, it was millions of people. And there were camps all over Europe and there were hotspots between those camps all over Europe and people were... Everywhere there was suffering on our own doorstep in Europe. So I decided that I needed to do something. And I'd already been helping out a little bit with a grassroots organisation that had a warehouse in my area. And my background's in press and media. So I thought, OK, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a bit more and I'm going to try to use my, my skills to do something to different, to do something good and escape from this feeling that I now have. So that's, I guess, my escape was like a personal escape. So I got involved with this group and they're an amazing group called Cali Action. We do a lot of fundraising and um, a lot of advocacy. But at, at that time, the main drive was to get together aid. So we kind of were just collecting stuff from people all over the UK and bringing it all to London and sorting it all in a big warehouse and getting it ready to ship it out to various places. And one of our members had just been out to Samos, which is um, one of the tiny islands on the Aegean um, in Greece, which is the gateway to Europe. And it's um, one of the islands where, you know, lots and lots and lots of people come over in the boats, the smuggling boats that uh, Hassan talked about earlier. We had organised a shipment that was going to go there, so I thought, okay, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to receive it, and I'm going to do a bit of an assessment of need, and have a look and see, you know, what I can do to help. And prior to us sending the shipment, we knew that it was really bad there. Um, Our founder, Libby, had gone out there and there'd been thousands of people just sleeping out literally on this concrete port. There was no shelter, there was no facility, there weren't even any tents. There were just women and children lying on these kind of mats and bits of kind of fabric that they'd been given. There were 12 Greek women who were cooking 
feeding everyone, trying to clothe them with clothes from the island. I mean, bearing in mind this is Greece and they're in the middle of their own economic crisis, you know, and Samos is a very poor economy. Um, anyway, you know, it's an island and there's not a lot of employment there, a lot of poverty. So these people were really, really desperate and they were doing their very best. But the picture that we got when we got there was just so shocking that you had to actually steer yourself and take stock not to let it show on your face because you would be meeting people who needed you to give them reassurance who needed you to make them feel safe and you would just be wanting to cry just looking at the situation and looking at the state they were in and then simultaneously you'd be beating yourself up thinking I'm so selfish to be feeling this way because this person needs me to be strong so it's a massive learning curve and One of the positive aspects was to see, actually, at that stage, that physical aid was really helpful. People had nothing and they needed things. So to be able to go into the the, the makeshift warehouse facility there and go, I know we have a pallet that's full of this because I put it there myself. And to open a box and to find the things that people needed was actually amazing. And um, I was really proud of us for having done that. So it's been six months now since we begun and I gave up my job in media firstly because I was really busy and distracted and then because I was doing this all of the time that um, I didn't have time for it and then every time that people called me I wasn't available so they just stopped calling me occasionally they'll call me for a kind of refugee story but apart from that this is now what I do all of the time and you know I'm I, I feel very privileged to have made that escape actually to have had my eyes opened because I do realize that I was sleepwalking through life a little bit I was pretty complacent you know I was comfortable so I wasn't really questioning things too much but the situation that I find myself in now is is a different one because at the time aid giving seemed like you know a really great thing and I could see the need for it you know people needed things we were supplying the things Everyone was rallying around. The whole country was sending things. It was amazing. You got this real sense of pride in humanity and in people's hearts and people's generosity because we raised huge amounts of money. I mean, one particular campaign was was over the course of five days and I think we raised somewhere in the region of £20,000 in five days, which is astounding. People just gave and they didn't know us from Adam. They just trusted us. They saw a need and they just gave us money. And we set about putting that money into the right places. And we did so much and things were great. Things were really starting to work on Samos. I I go back and forward, back and forward all the time. So they got to a point where I felt like, you know, okay, this is really grim. This is a, this is a pretty awful situation. People are in a pretty desperate state, but they come here, they're fed they're clothed, they have shelter, and we're doing it with love. We're even finding a bit of time to do other activities like crocheting and English lessons. You know, it's great. And people are generally pretty happy there. You know, I've been to a lot of other camps and facilities and seen the depression that sets in when people aren't being respected and treated with love. And it's very different from Samos. Samos is unique because the local authority there, the municipality, they have sort of meshed in with the volunteers and they want to deliver the programme that we're bringing and they want to do it with love as well, which is, which is really amazing. However, what's now happened there, it's becoming a hotspot 
an EU hotspot. So one of the kind of difficulties of campaigning to get the whole crisis acknowledged politically is that the, the kind of tail end of that is that the sting in the tail, let's say, is that when you bring in the EU and when you bring in the UN um, and you say, acknowledge this problem, this is happening, you have to deal with it, they come in and do it their way. And their way doesn't really involve much love. So what's actually happened in Samos is we desperately wanted the authorities to come in. We, we got everything going fine and we were sort of spinning these pl pl plates and saying, come on then, you know, where's the big guys? Come in and save us. Now you take over from here and you do it right. And they came along and what they did was took the whole heart out of all of it and they've dismantled the entire camp as it was set up at the time. Um, they've moved it all into one big facility and they've done it in a manner that's, really disorganised. So actually, people are back to square one again. They're arriving, there's no one to receive them. There isn't enough food for everybody because they haven't had the time to do the calculations to work out how much food they need to provide. And because they don't speak to the volunteers, because we're not officially recognised, they haven't got any of our information about the numbers of people or the needs of people. So right now, I'm in a point of sheer frustration because I don't really see the end to this situation, I feel like we all expect that there's some kind of authority that's operating in the world that's going to take care of everything. There's, there's they, the big they, who are going to come in and sort everything out. And I thought that the they was the UN. And I thought that they was the EU. And that's who we've wanted to take control of the situation. And now they've come in and in actual fact... They're not fixing it, they're making it worse. And this has led me to believe that aid giving and volunteering and all of those things that we do that are really amazing are just a sticking plaster. And that this whole situation is not going to get any better without a political resolution because in actual fact, charity shouldn't even really exist. It shouldn't be necessary in Europe with all the provisions that we have here and all of the money that we have here, it shouldn't be necessary for people to have to send their second-hand baby grows to children on an island elsewhere in Europe because we have the means to fix this politically. We've done it before and we can do it again and it's a lack of political will that has put us in this position. So now I feel... Although, of course, we're going to keep on and we're going to keep volunteering and we're going to keep fundraising and we're going to keep doing what we do, what we really need to be doing is asking the pertinent question, which is why is this happening? Why are we allowing people's human rights to be disregarded? We all need to start lobbying and we need to actually start to look for a political solution because as long as we keep putting the sticking plaster on, I think everybody's going to be happy for us to do that. And we're never going to escape from this cycle, which is basically that there is neglect there and the people that really care and really feel bad will come and they will fill a hole and the situation will never be resolved. Thanks to Julie, Prue, and everyone who told a story in this episode. Remember that you can help 
at stories.co.uk slash donate. And one last thing, people of Glasgow, we have a spark event for you. On the 21st of March, we'll be telling true stories on the theme Unbecoming. Stories of unflattering activities and untoward affairs. That's Monday, 21st of March at the Flying Duck in Glasgow. Full details at stories.co.uk. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.